The podcast continues as we talk about the last dance with our good friend Clarence Gaines Jr., who at the time was one of the assistant general managers for the Chicago Bulls. He saw a lot and heard a lot and and did a lot along that way. So, Clarence, you obviously have spent countless hours around Michael in that environment. I've had a few, and I agree with Tim Hallam. I don't know how anybody could live a life that he does on the road, let alone at home where going out is no longer an, even a remote option. I mean, it, it's, it's, it can't happen. And yet, and still he's able to still focus and maintain a reasonable life. Uh, when most people, I think it would just eat him alive. And, and I think it started to eat at him a bit, but, but to wrap up the whole thing about the media trying to climb on him, he responded in kind, didn't he? I mean, he went out and reminded people, oh, you thought that was a distraction? Let me let me just show you how little of a, of a distraction it actually is. What, if you, I don't know how many of your listeners have uh, heard Michael Jordan's Hall of Fame speech. If they hadn't, Google it, listen to it. It's a classic. And Michael talks about basically in a really straightforward way, how he's motivated himself. And he talks about, here's another log add on to the fire. Well, that was just another log. People coming out, chastising him for trying to live his life, how he knew he could live, and added the fire. What happened after that? Knicks were down. Knicks were up 2-0. to zero. Bulls won four straight. So that just tells you Michael's ability uh, when everything is coming at him, no matter what, his ability to focus and be able to marshal his energies to go on the floor and, as BJ say, play a game that most other people just can't relate to. He's playing at a different level. He's not playing basketball as we know it. And uh, that's what makes him go. You know, in terms of his ability to bring it day in, day out, and bring it to, at the uh, highest pressure moments. Anything you remember about that series that stood out to you? Which series, Mike? The, the series against the Knicks. Uh, let's go to the third game in the three-peat. Yeah, I remember the dunk. <laughs> <laughs> and and if, you, if people who are listening to this, don't remember that. Uh, don't remember that play. It, it is something that just brings you out your your seat when Michael's like invading two or three people on the uh, left wing and then dunks over uh, Patrick Ewing. Uh, just a powerful, explosive play. Uh, that's one of the greatest plays I've ever seen. You know, when I think about the, and I think it was touched on in, in the in the series playing the Knicks was almost like going back to play the Pistons and if there was ever a team that was ready for it it was certainly this Chicago Bull team because the the Pistons worked them over pretty good they played through it and here comes Pat Riley with a similar approach and it was almost like water off a duck's back after the first game well you know know what's uh, amazing is that um, Pat Riley is the architect of Showtime Lakers, not really. He actually he took over the team after the previous coach had the uh, Jack McKinney. Jack McKinney, yeah. Jack McKinney. No, no, no. It was uh, Paul Westhead. He took over for Paul Westhead, who took over for Jack McKinney. 
Right, but McKinney started off in terms of the, the bat Showtime Lakers, and then McKinney had the uh, the accident, unfortunate accident. You're right. Then Westhead took over, and then that didn't work out. And Riley continued that style of basketball because he had those type of players. But it's interesting that when he goes to the the Knicks, because of the type of players they had, he adopted a different philosophy. And maybe he saw how tough it was for the uh, the Bulls to get through the Pistons, but more likely it was because of the type of uh, talent he had around him, and he adjusted his, his philosophy to fit the, uh, the players that he had. But no, the, to get through the Knicks was uh, a gauntlet, and uh, just like the Pistons uh, made it uh, tougher and prepared us, uh, in, their, in, in their case, for the next round, for the championship round, uh, uh, you know, they they add to uh, the mystique uh, around our team. And no one can forget that uh, that play in uh, New York where they had an opportunity to. That, well, I, I get my series sometimes mixed up, but it's uh, because you know when you, when you when you're in the playoffs every year, you win six championships. They kind of run each other, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> hey, understandable <laughs> but, for sure. But but the, but the Charles Charles, Charles Smith. Yeah, yeah, when he, they picked his pocket. Hey, I want to go back yeah. to something that I don't think got enough talk. Phil Jackson, uh, highly decorated coach, going against Pat Riley, highly decorated coach. These guys played against each other uh, as players in the NBA, Lakers and the uh, and the Knicks. What sort of relationship did they have, if if at all, considering that they had these two high wire teams? Uh, one played it one way, one played it another way. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of media jockeying as far as cryptic messages that were being sent. But if there was such a case, these two would be the masters at it. Oh, they were the masters of it. Uh, and the only relationship they had was, uh, in my opinion, from what I know, it, it was through the media and them uh, chirping at one another, trying to gain an edge in the series. Uh Phil complaining about the style of basketball that they were playing and how the refs weren't calling such and such and such and such. And then uh, Pat may be responding to that. And then shaking hands after the series, even if they did that. Um, but uh, they were they were rivals, and I don't think they're particularly close, but they uh, I'm sure they respect one Clarence Gaines is our guest. We're talking about The Last Dance, the most recent episodes. All right, you know, the, the Bulls break through, they win again, and then all of a sudden here comes a book, maybe one of the best sports books ever written by Mr. Sam Smith, who was covering the Bulls at the time, The Jordan Rules. And uh, it opened up a chapter not just for the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan, but just a chapter of how sports is covered when you have access in the manner that Sam Smith did. Give me your thoughts when you first read the book. Oh, I said Sam's got good sources. <laughs> and he had more than one, apparently. Well, you know, I I, I teased a little bit uh, this morning a, a tweet because uh, I actually uh, said that in terms of the podcast that I've listened to, this is the one that's worth listening to, the one with uh, Sam and uh, Bob Ryan and uh, Jeff Goodman. And Sam actually goes in-depth about uh, the Jordan rules. I think it's really important for people to understand. I don't think there was a deep throw, but what there was was a lot of throats, and they were 
volunteering information to Sam over time and because he was really embedded with the team. Uh, and you have to look at Sam's background. He was an investigative journalist uh, before he went on the sports beat. He actually worked for a U.S. senator. Uh, so this was a guy who wasn't a typical sports reporter. And you had to respect his intellect. He formed relationships with Johnny Bach, Tex, uh, Phil Jackson, and uh, just by being around and listening and asking questions, uh, he was able to get a large portion of that uh, written, I, I would think. Um, and people like to talk, Michael. This is a, 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 a very few people who hold things close to the vest when you get to see them day in and day out. And they, sometimes people might be frustrated and that's what reporters do, right? They, they keep picking away and then somebody shares something. And Sam, because of his skills and his understanding of uh, not only the game, but people and just being around was able to uh, put together a pretty incredible book that just talked about the dynamics and inner working of the team where you're going to have natural um, conflicts and uh, which, you know, nothing to get crazy about, but it's just part of the equation. But when it's put in a book and you're talking about the Chicago Bulls, and specifically the book is directed to uh, kind of uh, expose Michael Jordan for not being an icon, but being human. Uh, it, it, uh, it captures everyone's attention. I, I got the biggest kick out of Phil telling the, uh, interviewer in the documentary that uh, Gary Krause earmarked about 25 different quotations in the book, and, you know, set me down in front of him. And we talked about who would have said this, who would have said that. And I said to myself, is that all the Jerry I know actually went through that book? I almost highlighted everything, marked what he didn't think was accurate and correct. And uh, it really occupied his mind that uh, it did a, a beat reporter would put out a, a book like this, a sensation that could cause possibly uh, dissension uh, within the ranks. Uh, in reality, uh, it was just a mere blip. Like most things in life, uh, you get through it. And uh, we went on to win what another championship when that book came out. Because it, that book actually chronicles the 90-91 season. So I think it came out 1992, if I'm mistaken. So that would have been after we won the second championship. It comes out going into the third championship. Michael had no problem feeling that Horace Grant was the major contributor to the book, and, and Horace vehemently denied it. Um, so and so and so does uh, Sam. And yeah. on the podcast that I mentioned, he said. Sam actually lays it out and kind of gives you how he got the information. It's because he had access to everybody. He'd sit on the plane. Um, if you know both Johnny and Tex in terms of basketball, they're going to share their thoughts and they're going to opinions. And he's able to piece things together and put a book together. And I'm sure he had some um, good uh, feedback on certain issues. I, you know, I have to reread the book, but. Uh, in terms of some good sources on a few things, but for the most part, it's just him being around. And like I said, I thought BJ said, came up with a pretty good one in terms of who was deep throat. Could be coaches, could be owners, could be management, could be players. And in effect, it was all of those. And I always look at this 
I just told you early in the uh, our podcast, Sam Smith is not employed by the Chicago Bulls, so I didn't hurt his relationship with Jerry Ryan. So yeah, Jerry respected him. No hard feelings on that front. Um, but, but on Horace, I'm going back to my Shaggy's name. It wasn't me. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Um, yeah. what was the, what was the general feeling after the book was out? Because I'm sure everybody looked at each other because we, we hadn't seen many books written like that about a team in, in its heyday. We, I mean, normally you might read one after their, their run is over or it's on the way down, but never in the middle of a, a run like they were involved in. You know, the, the, the book that's closest to it for me from the standpoint of shock value uh, and this was a landmark book when I was coming up. I remember reading it in eighth grade. It was Ball Four. But mm-hmm. I was thinking the same and, thing. Yeah. And, you know, I read that as an eighth grade, and that was a shocking book that kind of reverberated around the sports circles um, like this book did. And But the, the tenor and tone, it frustrated Jerry Krause. There's no doubt. And But for someone like Phil Jackson, and Jerry Weinsdorf of a different temperament, you know, they just, it's out there. What are you going to do about it? Uh, you go on about your business and, uh, uh, move on to what's important. And that's what's on the court and, and focus on this team winning a third championship, which is in fact what we did. But that book probably still haunts Jerry. And he's still probably, uh, thinking about that book while he's in his grave. But, um, <laughs> he's probably right next to him. That, 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 that's the kind of impact that book, that book had on Jerry. Boy, he was really perturbed. Because this, people say Jerry doesn't like the nickname that uh, Pat Williams gave him, the sleuth. But I think deep down, he, he really appreciates that nickname. And then this kind of against everything he wants to happen because he wants to keep things tight to that and close and then all the sins and faults of the organization are, are put out there for the general public to read but it made our team what human it made MJ a little bit more human to people and I was really impressed with what Sam said in terms of uh, the professional relationship that he had with Michael Michael never once uh, asked uh, Sam uh, about the book. And and Sam goes up to Michael right when the book's coming out and talks to him. Michael doesn't even say a word. just kind of nods. But he would answer his questions and go forth from that standpoint. I want to go back to something you said that we found that Michael was human. There was another element. Uh, regarding his politics and not supporting Harvey Gantt uh, in the senatorial election in North Carolina. Caught a lot of heat from people who looked like him at the time, uh, but he was steadfast in why he did what he did. And, you know, he, he did make, he said he made a contribution, but this was more than about money at the time, although it was about more money in the end with regard to Michael electing to stay reasonably publicly neutral with regard to that election. Give me your thoughts on that. You, you, you know, the North Carolina area well, and what was the impact like for Michael and how did he deal with that beyond? Uh, I think he, he obviously weathered the storm, but give me your slant. <laughs> Mike, Michael always weathers the storm. Wow. You know, this is a really deep, deep issue. And um, I am from North Carolina, born and raised in North Carolina. 
Jesse Helms is notorious for his uh, antipathy towards uh, those who aren't white. And, you know, the African American Museum in Washington, D.C. is celebrated by everybody now. But this is the kind of guy Jesse Helms was in that he tried to kill that museum year after year after year. You go to the record books, you know, you'll see that. And Michael is a, a, a big contributor to the African American Museum. I know he put money down on that you know, in terms of private contributions. I don't know if you've ever been to that museum, but it's an incredible. Fascinating. Uh, Fascinating. Incredible, incredible place I, to I, go. I tell people then, you have to be there more than one day in order to truly no absorb it. And, and, and I can't tell you the first time I walk in there and go to the sports area and I see my father um, on the wall and to see your dad represented in a, uh, a national museum of that scope is just uh, um, a remarkable, big, proud experience to know that you, 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 you grew up with this man who... who uh, it's so revered by people. So when I when I look at Jesse Helms from that standpoint, I look at his opposition to uh, the Martin Luther King holiday. I know that Michael's from North Carolina. He knows what Jesse Helms is about. <clears throat> and he takes that stand. And even his mom calls him up and says, hey, I got these people that want me to uh, uh, say something in, in reference to Harvey Gann. It was an incredible man. You know, Harvey... Uh, uh, was the I know he's an Ivy Leaguer, but he's he's also really known for integrating uh, Clemson University. Uh, he's an architect, and uh, he was uh, a guy who was pretty progressive. And all Michael had to do was pick up a phone call and say, "You know, let's meet." But Michael, to understand Michael is when you got to the level he did so many people coming after him I'm sure he's wary of people utilizing using him and using him to his name to uh, obviously uh, promote a certain cause I would say Michael got tired of that to a certain degree Um, and and that's just me speculating in terms of uh, just seeing the day to day interactions uh, and the pressure that was put on him on a, on a daily basis in terms of people wanting to get a piece of him. And so Michael was extremely good at saying no. Um, but, you know, when you're in his shoes and he has a focus, and his focus is to be the best possible basketball player he can be and to affect and impact change in that way, I have to respect that. Because some of us are built to do certain things. In Michael's case, at that time, he wasn't built in his mind to be a social justice warrior. Yet I think he um, moved the needle in terms of race relations just by showing his competence and brilliance on a day-to-day basis. Um, I was listening to a program on Netflix called Black AF. You can come up with what AF is. I heard Tyler Perry quote Nina Simone. It's a pretty powerful episode. And it says, you will use up 
everything you got trying to give everybody what they want. And when I hear that quote, when I look at guys who have the personality um, and the profile of a Michael Jordan, you know, you just can't please everybody. And Michael was pretty straightforward about, you know, I'm playing basketball. I'm not that involved in politics, and for the most part, I'm going to stay out of it. So I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to respect that. I'll tell you what's a, a really deep comment that was made in that documentary, and I'm going to read it for you. It's when Barack, Barack Obama comments, and he says, Any African-American in this society that sees significant success as an added burden, a lot of times, Americans are quick to embrace the Michael Jordan, Oprah Winfrey, Barack Obama, so long as it's understood that you don't get too controversial around broader issues of social justice. And for the President of the United States, who for eight years served in that office, to say that in that documentary, uh, it's just penetrating, it's powerful. I think any minority has who's been in a majority situation in a corporate world and the political world and the sports world understands um, what he's talking about and that fine line you sometimes have to walk. Yes, we celebrate uh, a moment, Muhammad Ali, who uh, took stand. We celebrate a John Carlos uh, and a Tommy Smith. And I should say that in reverse because since Tommy won the gold medal, right? <laughs> Tommy Smith and John Good Carlos. Good point. Um, but you also have to look at what the NBA was like around Michael's time when he entered the league. And the NBA was a league in 1970s, and you had the ABA-NBA merger. Well, basketball wasn't a popular sport from the standpoint of mass appeal. Um, it was drug-infested to a degree. You know, Michael talks in the first uh, documentary about he knocked on the room and what did he see? So alcohol, uh, cocaine, and women all in the same room together. And Jerry ended up getting rid of a lot of the guys who were had negative characters in the first few years. Um, but <clears throat> that was a public relations battle that the NBA had to wage in terms of league being thought of as too black. And, uh, um, so, you know, players, once they got into the 1980s, and I'm sure a lot of this came from the influence of David Stern when he took over, uh, they started being a little bit more corporate and not pushing the envelope in terms of taking political stand. One of the most, uh, political players, if you think about it, uh, who really wasn't that political with once he got into the NBA in the 80s, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in the 68 Olympics, uh, it's a great picture of everybody meeting the summit with Jim Brown. Um, one, one of my favorite pictures of all time. Yeah. And, you know, they're, they're talking at that time about the boycott. Well, Kareem ends up not going to the 68 Olympics to participate in the basketball. Uh, he says that, you know, it, it, that would have been too much time spent away from what he really wanted to do. All he ended up doing was going to New York that summer and basically working in a 
public program where he would go and, uh, I think, mentor kids, uh, whether it's on the basketball court and the training aspect, but he was utilizing his time in that form of fashion. But <clears throat> Kareem was thought of a little bit as a radical when he came out of UCLA. Matter of fact, there was a Sports Illustrated article that I recently read that he read, that he, uh, he uh, wrote with the help of someone, so three-part series uh, in his uh, his rookie year with Milwaukee, saying he shouldn't have uh, gone to UCLA. He, he, he details the reasons why. And, and then 40 or 50 years later, he writes a book, Coach Wooden and Me. <laughs> so, you know, perspectives do change over time as you mature. Uh, but I think it's good for people to have that kind of context when they they're being hard on uh, MJ in terms of not being more politically active. He's got he's done a lot of things since the uh, his time as a player. We all mature at different rates, but you know what is right for me is not necessarily right for you. And and I look at this also in the context of my dad. Um, obviously, my dad came up in a time of, of segregation. When I introduce myself to people, I say I'm a child of segregated South. My dad was at a predominantly black college, Winston-Salem State. Um, he had a player named Earl Monroe, and in 1967, they won the college division championship at NCAA. My dad never marched in a um, civil rights demonstration. He was a guy that believed in working within the system to impact and affect change. In my hometown, he did that. Uh, in, a, in a lot of different ways. And one of them was uh, through that team. And I wrote a blog called Earl Monroe's Impact and actually put together a video. And this was the time, you know, 60s uh, were, were a time of, of a massive change in our society. I always tell people, uh, I'm glad I, I consider myself the cha- a child of the 60s to see this kind of change happen in my lifetime. To see uh, in my hometown, um, schools go from public school systems going from being in a all black segregated to integration coming around finally in like 1969, 70 year. But my dad moved his games because of Earl Monroe impact. That this guy was such a dynamic player that the white people in our town wanted to see him. And the only way they could see him, they couldn't go into Whitaker Gym, which holds 1,200 people. We had to go into Memorial Coliseum, where White Forest played. Just that time held about 8,000 people. White people, black people sitting side by side to celebrate the brilliance of this small college team that went on to win, win a national championship, one of the 50 greatest players of all time in Earl Monroe. And that's how I look at how Michael Jordan was able to impact race relations and change people's mindset. And I, from the standpoint of that model that was set by my, my dad um, back in his team and, and his Earl Monroe's genius back in the 60s. Final segment I want to ask you about, and that is the 3P. I mean, a word we never heard used before until the Bulls rolled along, and uh, they earned it. There's no question about that. Give me your thoughts and your memories about that final run and, and going for the three-peat and obviously uh, everything that came with it. Well, you know, that's a time when they actually uh, mentioned the New York Knicks. And uh, I've alluded that that in some degree uh, 
because, uh, you know, we had to get through the Knicks to get to Phoenix. And if you, if you look at that season, I think the Bulls were, you know, struggling a little bit, obviously. You know, we only run 57 games and the New York Knicks were the Eastern Conference champions, had home court advantage. So, this tells you how hard it is to maintain that level of excellence. I remember, for example, and I'm going to come back to this, <clears throat> that the last year uh, Bill Russell won a championship, that he was the head coach, that the Boston Celtics, I think, were fourth in their division. <clears throat> but we all know playoff basketball is different than regular season basketball, and they were able to turn it one last time to get that level of championship. And I kind of look at that year somewhat to that degree. Went through our trials and tribulations. Weren't as dominant in the regular season. But when it came to uh, the playoffs, we uh, did work. You know, the first two games, um, the Knicks swept us. And I think this is something about the team. You have to look at the leadership of uh, Michael and Phil, and that they never panic. Uh, for example, go back to our first championship. You know, in terms of the Lakers, the Lakers come in to Chicago Stadium, which is an incredible place. You know, we haven't talked about Chicago Stadium, but there's United Center, great, make money. But in terms of where I want to actually see a game and feel the pulse and power of a crowd. Nothing, nothing like Chicago Stadium. I'm going to digress, and I'm going to get back to this. Mike, I know you're a hockey guy. I had the opportunity yep. to see the Chicago Blackhawks in a game when they were hot, and Wayne Mesmer sings the national anthem, and it's incredible. Those people are cheering from the time he starts the first stanza to the end. A hockey crowd is totally different from a basketball crowd. And that stadium, that's acoustics and dynamics, that was an incredible environment. So we're coming back. I got to tie all this together. So we're coming back after being down two games. You got the Atlantic City trip. And Michael's able to focus, get our team ready where we come out and win the next four games. I look at this concept, and I try to get it across to people when um, they're feeling a little pressure. Pressure is a privilege. Now, a lot of people don't think of it at the time, <clears throat> but the fact that you are in this situation and you have this opportunity, you've got to look at it as a privilege. And now you just have to be able to manage and deal with that. And Phil was really good about bringing in coping strategies for the players. And it wasn't something he just did that day, that's something that was a part of his day to day interaction with the team, you know, in terms of mindfulness, in terms of meditation, visualization, relaxing, and get guys comfortable with that. And uh, as I alluded to, we get to, to game five, which was a pivotal game when we go back to New York. And I just say, length, baby, because Charles Smith couldn't get it over Harz, he couldn't get it over MJ, he couldn't get it over Pitts. And that kind of epitomizes uh, the power and force of, of our team uh, to come back from that deficit 
those long, lean, athletic athletes who, a quote-unquote term we now use, we just use basketball players. Now we call them two-way players. But, you know, the game is you're supposed to play offense and defense. But the team was built among guys who could actually stop people as well as score. And uh, then we get to the Phoenix Suns series where you get Charles in charge. And the media always wanted to find a way <clears throat> when I dominant not to give Michael the MVP because he could win the MVP every year. You know, and we get to the second three, Pete, you know, look at Carl Malone. You're going to take Carl Malone over Michael for the MVP. And I'll never forget Carl bricking them free throws. And you really know that when it comes to pressure and being able to do something as simple as make free throws, Utah might have won a championship. Uh, but we know who the real MVP was day in and day out. He, he always won those finals MVP, but he should have won a lot of MVPs during the regular season. But Charles is the MVP that year, deservedly so. We did struggle a little bit, so I guess they looked at that. They want to give it to someone else. Um, but uh, uh, Phoenix posed a challenge um, for a little bit. You know, we won the first two games, and then they were able to, in Phoenix, and we come to Chicago and able to steal the game. I give them credit. They actually was a triple overtime game. Uh, I get a kick out of it. You probably remember this in the, the video that uh, MJ wanted to bury Marley and show Kraus that he wasn't the player he thought he was. That's Krause's genius, if you ask me. Say, I like this player because what Krause wants him to, to bury him, right? So that we win a championship. That just shows you how they pick little things uh, uh, to, to motivate themselves. Well, and, uh, but, but you know what? I'm going to go back to, and you may remember when they kind of locked on Jordan and Marley locked horns doing the Olympic trial run. And uh, that that was kind of the beginning of their I don't know wouldn't call it a rivalry, but you know there was some there was not a lot of love between those two in, in one of those games, and they were going to go, and that's when Jordan kind of turned it up on Marley, and I don't think he ever regretted it. You mean when uh, he was uh, coming into the NBA in nineteen eighty four Olympics? Uh, yeah, that time, and then when they came back around the next time, uh, when they were going, they were doing the tour around the country. Oh, I got you in terms of they needed competition. Right, All exactly. Right. And Marley, I guess, made the mistake of trying to guard Jordan or did something that got him really teed off and that he kind of destroyed him. And when they get to the finals, you knew this was not going to be a good finals for Dan Marley. Yeah, that you could say that. <laughs> and, 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 and the other thing I, I remember is, because I was, I was on the plane when we – Lost the, it would have been what, the uh, game where we could have clinched and we had to go back to Phoenix. So that would have been the sixth game. And because it was a 2 3 2 format at that time. <clears throat> and we could have closed them out to Chicago in the fifth game and we didn't. And MJ gets on the, on the plane smoking his cigar and basically saying, you know, I only brought one suit. <laughs> well, he's, he's setting a tone there, you know. And what I've always kind of alluded to before, you know, we've measured this moment. We know we're better. Now we just got to go out and execute. And it's that confidence that rubs off on people and say, hey, it's going to be okay. And uh, and I think the other thing that really stands out is the clincher. 
and I, I don't know if a lot of people know this, and you might know it. If you don't, go back and look at it. Just the shot Paxson hit. And if you look at the sequence, everybody on that play touches the ball. All yeah. five players. Yeah, yeah. I had an end zone seat, and I see Horace going to the basket, and I think, man, Horace can get this in the in the pack. And he sees packs open. He says, I'm giving it the pack, because I know he can handle that pressure. <laughs> and what's even more fun about that, and you can't really see it on the film, is as soon as Pax releases, BJ's in the corner, and he's falling down, celebrating before he goes to the net, because he knows, knows it's going in. Well, that's the kind of clutch player John Paxton was. Clarence Gaines is our guest. We invite you to stick around. We've got more talk from The Last Dance, and it comes your way after we have a chance to hear these important messages. Are you in the market to purchase a new or used vehicle? Munganass St. Louis Acura is here to help. Check out all of their inventory at stlouisacura.com. They'll bring the car to you, and they can also complete the entire process without you having to leave your home. Contact them today at stlouisacura.com. We love talking to the president and chairman of Ameren, Illinois. He is Richard Mark. Emergency Operations Center acts as kind of a central command center, and everything is dictated from there. They tell the crews that are out in the field where to go, where the main breakers are to go to to de-energize the line, and then they verify that that line is closed, and they're able to tell five, six, seven hundred people that are working out in the field exactly where to go to make the proper repairs to get our system back on in a storm situation. Well, and I'm going to go back to the, the earlier time when Tex Winter and Phil Jackson convinced Michael, hey, you know what, if Pax is open, feed it to him. And, and my point being not just because it was Jim Paxson, uh, but the fact that, hey, move the ball, find the open man, and put your ego aside, and let's make sure we get the best shot for the best situation. And this was a classic example that I think guys had been more comfortable with this time around than maybe they would have been earlier in their tour duty. Well, uh, you know, as I alluded to when we brought up Dennis Hobson earlier, and he was a guy who you couldn't count on. He had lost Michael's confidence. And once Michael loses the confidence in you, he can't play. So my, Jerry had to eat that deal in terms of the draft picks that he had given up. He had given up a first-round pick for him and some second-round picks. And he had moved him along and moved him along for Bobby Hanson. Bobby Hanson actually uh, played a pivotal role. That was one of your guys, wasn't it? No, 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 not one of my guys. I thought you might have had a hand on that one. No, no, but Jerry was just trying to, you know, Bobby had been an established player in the league. He had been around. And he had, uh, I think it was with uh, Sacramento at the time. But we need some veteran help. And he was trying to find someone who would fit and uh, basically could uh, offload uh, Hop on him. Hop only played one more year after that. Uh, you know, the, the experience with Michael shell shocked him. Uh, he had a really uh, limited career for a guy who was picked the third third in the draft. Um, but back to what you were, were saying, Michael trusted, got to the point where he trusted his teammates. And they had proved themselves uh, 
day by day in a practice situation to be able to go up against the demands that not only being a championship team requires, but demands Michael Jordan requires of you just by being his teammate. And uh, uh, he was able to uh, say, hey, somebody's open on being double team. I'm giving up the ball. So, yeah. Lesson learned. Clarence Gaines, as always, uh, man, we've, we've had some fun with this. I'm looking forward to next week. Uh, final thoughts from you? Final thoughts is two years makes a difference. Uh, you go, you win the first championship, there's joy. And you get to the third championship, and then there's relief. It's a different emotion. And I think that they've done a really good job of showing the uh, toll that being under this pressure for a three-year time period, uh, how it impacts not only a team, but an individual. Because you rarely would hear Michael talk about losing his edge. And I think he, he talked about the physical and mental exhaustion in, in, in terms of uh, meeting this challenge. And so when we get to the next part of the documentary, it obviously has to deal with the death of uh, MJ's dad, which we all remember. Uh, I can remember vividly when that happened, just being in shock. Um, and then Michael deciding that he had to take a break from the game. And his way of doing that uh, was to pursue uh, a career for a short time in baseball. It's going to be interesting just to see how that is presented and uh, uh, how it uh, transpires. And um, I, I look forward to seeing the episode because hopefully they talk about a little bit about the, uh, the teams that uh, were uh, put together. Michael wasn't there. And then how key additions to that team form the basis of uh, the, the second three-peat. And uh, I'll have some surprises in order for the, uh, the listening audience in terms of the composition of that team that people might find surprising. Can't wait. Clarence Gaines, thank you, sir. All right, Michael, take care.